2 Kings chapter 24. We're going to start with the first three verses, and then we'll continue on through from there as the sermon continues. So, Josiah chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, says, Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, This morning we remember that there is a way that you have set before us that we might walk in it. We don't get to do what is wise in our own eyes or choose our own path, Lord, because the paths that we choose that are wise in our own eyes all lead to death and destruction. There is one path, one path only to life, and it is a narrow way through a narrow gate that is difficult, but it is the way to life, and that is your path. And Father, as I think about that today, On a day we celebrate John and Holly, I think of those words of the apostle who says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow after me as I follow the ways of Jesus. And Lord, certainly you have given us examples in our congregation in the Blantons. And so, Father, even now, as they step out in faith to go and take a new step in their journey in following after Christ, I pray, Father, that we would follow with a similar boldness and confidence in the provision that you will make. That we would honor you, and love you, and enjoy you, and walk in your ways. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So our oldest two are finally of an age where they don't really have to have us help them stand up in the ocean. Right? We had the opportunity to be able to uh, go to the Gulf Coast for a couple of weeks this past summer. And it was such a neat experience. The first time in the last 11 years, Megan and I took Gracie and Sarah, and they wanted they were going to play in the ocean. And we could just say, hey, don't go any deeper than this. Kind of stay right here. We're going to sit and watch. And it was awesome. Like, it was awesome, right? But they're there, and, th- and it's really the first time that they're playing in the ocean. And, and look, y'all, I don't want y'all to like, judge my parenting. They're, they're going, like, waist deep, okay? We're, and, and we're talking, like, green flag. Everything's good, okay? Just, just transparency here but they're playing and you, and you know how it is when you're learning to play in the ocean they're out and they're playing and they're doing their thing and just gradually just just an inch at a time the the current is kind of moving them down the beach right and, and they weren't really paying attention to it it was so subtle that they could hardly even notice that it was true and so Megan or I would get up and we would go and we would find them and we would bring them back in front of us and uh, so that they could continue to play. And you know, I, I've found that very often our faith is like that. That we desire, we meet Jesus maybe at an early age or even at a later age in our lives. And when we come to faith in Christ, our genuine desire is to bring him glory. Our genuine desire is to love him and to make him known and to follow after him with a sincere heart. But we begin to play in the waves nearby, don't we? And 
unintentionally and even good-heartedly, with, with good and sincere faith, slowly, an inch at a time, subtly, just a foot at a time, just a little here and a little there, our faith begins to drift, doesn't it? And in the midst of this drifting faith, hoping to just have an enjoyable life and to have some fun in our lives, we, we end up getting caught up in some riptides. The riptide of marriage begins to sweep us out to sea. And the riptide of parenting begins to sweep us out to sea. And the riptide of our job and our health and the bills and the budget and all of the competing interests that we find in this earth. We find ourselves being swept out to sea and start what started as just a slow drift and a slow fade ends up with us being exhausted and drowning. Just wishing we could keep our heads above water. And so maybe this morning, you would find yourself there and you would say, I long for the day in which I could have the anchor of a solid faith, a faith that is anchored in Christ, and a faith like maybe even I once had, that what you would want is a renewed faith. That is Judah's story when Josiah is the king. There was once a time when David was on the throne in Jerusalem and all the people of God were following after a man after God's own heart and they would be zealous for the things of the Lord. Hezekiah, his great granddad, had done something similar and there had been a revival and a renewal among the people of Judah and they were hungry and fast after God. But by the time Josiah comes away, comes around, their faith is adrift. They have subtly and slowly, an inch at a time, a foot at a time, fallen away from the Lord. So much so that by the time Josiah becomes king at eight years old, nobody in their lifetime has even heard the law of God read. It seems as though it's an afterthought. And so what Josiah recognizes is that his people, if they're to have any hope, need a renewed faith. And he begins them on a pathway to renewal. And perhaps this morning... If you were to look at your faith and recognize that you were in need of renewal, that you could follow after Josiah's pathway. I think he shows us what this looks like. The first step along this pathway is to recognize the need for renewal. Imagine if God sent an angel to you today. That would be pretty awesome, first of all. I mean, by the way, every time they see angels in the Bible, everybody's afraid of them. So they're probably not the soft little fluffy, cuddly guys with halos that we, we think they are. They're fierce warriors, right? But just imagine a messenger from God comes to you and he has a message. He says, you're right with God. You'll live in peace the rest of your life. Well, that is a fantastic message. But you know, I think it's actually your response after that that indicates what you believe to be true about the gospel. That it's your response and how you would live in response to knowing that you're right with God and knowing that you'll live a peaceful life that actually indicates whether or not the true gospel has taken root in your heart. Because you see, most of us, most of us just want an easy life and to go to heaven when we die. Most of us would be content if someone could just say, I'll have an easy life and I'll go to heaven when I die. Most of us would take that deal every single time. And if an angel came and gave us that kind of message, most of us would be prone to just put it in neutral and coast from here on out, wouldn't we? But see, that betrays something. That betrays that we really haven't encountered the living God. 
That betrays that the true gospel hasn't actually taken root in our hearts because what we see time and again throughout the New Testament is exactly what we see in Josiah because Josiah got that deal. Josiah was told by the Lord through the prophetess Huldah that you are now right with God and you will live your life in peace. And what Josiah said is that is awesome, that is wonderful and now as good as God has been to me I want to know him more. I want to go deeper with God. I want to love God more. I want to love God better. I want to serve God more faithfully. As much as God is, of God as I know right now, it only whets my appetite to make me hungrier and thirstier for the righteousness that I know is in him. That God is so good and so glorious and God has been so good and so glorious to me that I want to know everything about him that I can know. I've told you before that I think the greatest indictment on our generation, particularly in the, in the Bible Belt South, is how little of God we're comfortable with knowing. But Josiah isn't just content to know God himself and to honor God himself. He wants to bring all of his people along with him. He wants all of the people of Judah to renew their covenant with God. And so what we're seeing here in chapter 23 is the renewal of the covenant between God's people and the Lord. And so really in verse 3, what Josiah is showing is he's showing this is what it looks like to renew the covenant. And then immediately after that, he said, this is what I'm going to do. And now this is what I want you to follow suit in doing. And it shows us what it looks like to have a renewed faith. That there's really two components to a renewed faith. First, it is that God is your chief pursuit. That God is your chief pursuit. Look at what he says. He says, and the king stood by the pillar. The pillar was the place where the king would, in, in, in the city, where the king would make treaties with other kings. And so it is a place where official business is done. And so here he is, King Josiah, with all of his people gathered around, the place where business is done. And he is going to do business on behalf of his people with the king of kings, with the God of gods. And he's going to renew the covenant that had been long forgotten before the Lord. And so he says, what is this going to look like? It's going to look like walking after the Lord, keeping his commandments, his testimonies, and his statutes. That the first component really tells us how a renewed faith lives, how a renewed faith looks. That this is something that you, is observable by those who are on the outside. That what Josiah says is what every person with a renewed faith says is that what I am going to walk in the way of God. I'm going to keep the commands that he has given me. I'm going to keep the statutes that he's given me. I'm going to observe the testimonies that he has sent to me. That wherever God wants me to go, that's where I'll go. Whatever God wants me to do, that's what I'll do. Whoever God wants me to be, that's where I'll be. My life is not up for debate. My life is not up for my own engineering that I'm going to walk in the ways of God and go in the paths of God because I have committed myself to say that my chief pursuit is not my own interest. My chief pursuit is not my own preferences. My chief pursuit is not my own comforts. My chief pursuit is to walk after the ways of God. That is that God is my top priority and my first commitment. When I'm setting my schedule, when I'm setting my budget, when I'm determining the things that I will participate in and the things that I will not participate in, my first commitment, my chief priority is that I am going to walk in the ways of the Lord. And so we can see here that a renewed faith is a decisive one. A renewed faith is a decisive one. 
That it, in other words, makes a lot of the decisions for our lives on our behalf. That it sets and establishes for us our commitments and our priorities so that we know the direction to take our family. We know the direction to take our marriage. We know the direction that we are to aim our careers. That for those who are, uh, who, who, for whom God is their chief pursuit, they don't have to debate what sexual ethics are acceptable. They have to go and see what God has said. Because their commitment is now God's commitment. For, for those for whom God is their chief pursuit, they don't have to weigh the pros and cons of leaving their husband or leaving their wife. What God has said has already stacked the scale in one direction. They already know the decision has been made on their behalf. They don't have to go when it's an issue of right and wrong and when it's an issue of ethical clarity for which God has spoken in his word. They don't have to go to all of their friends and all of their buddies and all of their co-workers to ask them, to help them nuance the ethics of the Bible and the morality of the Bible to make it more acceptable and palatable today. They don't have to go and weigh the pros and cons because they, God has already said it and it is decisive. Their renewed faith is to walk after God to make his word and his way and his statutes and his command their top commitment and their top priority and so it sets for them the way they will live this is how we will live we will live as though God is the one blazing the trail and we will follow after him that's what a renewed faith looks like that's the first component the second component doesn't so much show us how we live it shows us why we live that way shows us why we live that way that is that God is not only your chief pursuit a renewed faith has God as its chief as his chief passion, as his greatest passion. Notice what Josiah says. He doesn't just say, I'm going to walk after the Lord. I'm going to keep all his stinking rules. I'm going to do all the doggone things he tells me to do. He says, I'm going to walk after the Lord. I'm going to keep his commandments, his testimonies, his statutes with all his heart and all his soul. That I'm going to do it because there is an inner sincerity to me. It's not just outward conformity. It is inward sincerity. In fact, it is inward passion that says what I want is I want to know God. What I want is I want to be right with God. What I want is I want to draw near to God. What I want is I want to bring him honor and glory with my life. That I don't just do these things because I have to do them. I do them because I love God and I'm going after God. Because I want to go after God. That is, our, a renewed faith is not just a decisive faith. It's an impassioned one. It's an impassioned one. It, it's a faith that has zeal, that bubbles up from the inside. It is a recognition that there is one and only one who is worthy of such devotion and honor and glory. And it's God. That what Josiah wants for his people as they renew the covenant with God is not just some transactional relationship like they had had with all of the other false gods on earth. And I fear so often in the way that we boil God down to following rules and attending a service and giving a certain amount of money and doing this or not doing that, that in fact what we have done is we have boiled down the service of our God as though he is one of all the other false gods of the earth, as though he is no different than Allah, the God of the Mormons. But our God is greater, that he is not interested in just robotic, mechanical obedience. That what he is looking for is to recognize that every single one of us, every single day, are living in the desert. We are living in the desert, and it is parching our soul. You go to work, and it parches your soul, doesn't it? Your boss is hard on you. It seems like you're accomplishing nothing. It feels like you're frivolously just spending your life. 
You turn on the news, my goodness, that parches your, law, your life, doesn't it? You turn on a presidential debate and you're parched. You hear your kids come down and they're beaten down and bullied at school and you're parched. You have to go and struggle through all the hardships of marriage and living and coexisting with a sinner, even in the best of circumstances, and it, and it parches your soul. And then, when you recognize that you're living in the desert, but the fountain has come to you, that there is a fountain that you can know, there is a fountain that you can have, there is a fountain that you can abide in and abide with and who will abide in and with you, that will go with you forever, that will constantly be pouring into you life, that will constantly be pouring into you joy, that will constantly be pouring into you all the things that you need to be able to sustain yourself through this desert land. My goodness, you don't want to run into the desert, you want to stay by the fountain, you want to reside with the fountain, you want to Enjoy the fountain. That when you're living in the desert, the fountain is your passion. I think this is why the Heidelberg Catechism, it opens up, its opening question is this. What is the chief end of man? And you know what answer it gives? I think it's right. I think it's right. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That the chief end of man is not just to follow some rules. That the chief end of man is not just to come to church. The chief end of man is not just to avoid hell. All of those things are good. All of those things have their place. But they are a framework that leads us to the enjoyment of God. An outward conformity driven by an inward sincerity. A passion for the name of God. That God has made himself known to us. Not that we would walk on eggshells around him, but that we would enjoy him through the person of Christ. Are you enjoying God? Are you delighting in God? Are you walking after God? This is another way for me to ask you. Compare your faith to the faith that Josiah is displaying and ask yourself, do you need a renewed faith? Do you need a renewal of your faith where it's not just outward conformity and it's not just an inward aspiration. It is the alignment of the exterior and the interior to go after God with all that you have. That, if that's the case, you're ready for the second step. The first step is to recognize the need for renewal and the second step is to deal now ruthlessly with your sin. Deal ruthlessly with your sin. You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount had some really radical things to say about sin and about dealing with our sin. Jesus says that if you harbor bitterness in your heart, harbor anger in your heart, that you are a murderer. Jesus says if you lust after a man or after a woman, that you are an adulterer. And what he says is next is so countercultural in our day, and it's so counter the PR for Jesus, on Jesus' behalf that seems so prevalent even among the church. Now what Jesus says next is that if you want to avoid hell, these are Jesus' words. Go back, read them, Matthew chapter 5. If you want to avoid hell, if your right eye arm causes you to sin, you should cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, you, could, you should rip it out of your head. That is that Jesus is far less comfortable and casual about our favorite sins than we are. That we become comfortable with them and we become justified in them. And Jesus says to deal ruthlessly with them. This is what Josiah does. 
Josiah doesn't just call his people to some sentimental faith. He begins to initiate reforms across the land of Judah. And we're going to see even extend beyond the land of Judah. And it is a display in the face of God of open, actionable repentance in his life and in the life of his people that the Lord might be honored and glorified and that the covenant between God and his people might be renewed and enjoyed going forth. And so he has something to say to us about what repentance should look like. That repentance must be radical. That repentance must be radical. Read chapter 23, verses 4 through 6 with me. And it says, And the king, this is Josiah, commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, and for Asherah, and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. There also he who burned, also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And if you keep reading all the way through verse 20, you'll read reform after reform after reform. But he's not tap-toeing. He's not taking all of the, he's not tiptoeing around all the false gods and all the people's feelings. He's taking, not taking them out and putting them in a storage building so they can be revisited one day or re-brought out one day. He's taking all of the priests that have offered and have, are now pervading the land. He's taking them all and he's deposing them. Some of them, he's executing them. He's taking all of, the, all of the altars and all of the high places that have been offered and he's bringing them down and he's setting them on fire and crushing them into dust. He's dragging out all of, the, all of the idols out of the Holy of Holies and he's bringing them outside of the temple and he's crushing them into powder and lighting them on fire. This is my favorite thing that he does. Beat it to dust and burned it at the brook. Burned it at the brook and beat it to dust, right? And so what you see in Josiah is that he's dealing ruthlessly with the sins of his people. He's dealing ruthlessly with the sins that he's inherited. He's dealing ruthlessly with all of the gods that they had become so very comfortable with. Now this looks very different than it often looks in our lives and in our dealings with sin, doesn't it? Many of us have our sins that we would prefer to keep. Many of us have our pet sins, our, our favorite sins that, that we don't want anybody else to know about and we don't want anybody else to touch or anybody else to deal with. Now there are some that we confess that we know we need to get rid of and we want to unload those on the Lord, but there's always a few besetting sins that seem to be lurking in the shadows that we want to keep in our grasp, in the shadows of our lives. That is, the way that we like to deal with our sin is with a scalpel, Right? Like a surgeon with a scalpel, when there's a cancer on her arm, we want to go and just cut the smallest bit out, right? We want to be able to keep, in other words, as much of the life that we have without altering it. We want to be able to keep as much of the lifestyle that we have without altering. We want to just cut just the smallest bit out. And so we're reading and trying to read the lines between the lines of the Bible to say, okay, how much of this can I keep? How close to this line can I go? How much of the world can I have and still bring glory to the name of Jesus? 
But what Josiah shows us and what Jesus taught us is that we shouldn't approach our sin with a scalpel. We should approach it with a chainsaw. Our goal is not to cut as little of the cancer off of our arm as we can. The goal is to saw the whole arm off because our goal is not to keep our arm. Our goal is not to keep our lifestyle. Our goal is not to keep our preferences. Our goal is not to live as much of the world as we can. Our goal is to enjoy and know God and to walk with God in the enjoyment of God, to the glory of God, with the honor of God, with all of our lives. Now let me ask you, which sins are you wanting to keep? Which sins are you wanting to keep? Which sins do you intend to go back to this afternoon? Which sins are already on your calendar for next week? Which sins do you assume have been there for the last 10 years and are going to be there for the next 10 years? Which sins lurk in the shadows of your life? Brothers and sisters, these are the ones you must deal most radically with. For these are the ones that have established an altar in the temple of your heart. And you need to drag them out of the temple and light them on fire and crush them into fine powder because what Josiah recognizes you must recognize that unrepentant sin will extinguish a renewed faith that ra- the repentance must be radical and repentance must be fearless i think this is my favorite part of this whole reform that Josiah institutes look at verse 8 with me it says and he brought out all the priests of the cities of judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. Now, what's interesting is we're talking about places of worship. We're talking about altars. And he goes to the altars, the the places of worship of these false gods, and he intentionally, purposefully desecrates and defiles them. In fact, he doesn't do that one time. He goes on to do that uh, four times in verse 10. And he defiled Topheth. And verse 13, and the king defiled the high, pra- high places. Verse 16, the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it. Do you see this? He is spitting in the face of the false gods that have haunted his people. And it's an act of defiance. Why is he defiling them? What he would do is he would, uh, in some case, he would dig up dead bones and he would pile them on the altars. It even took some of the priests. There was the god Molech who would demand it. And the people of Israel, God's own people, had offered their sons to this false god, their own children. And so Josiah takes the priests of these gods and he sacrifices them and offers them up to their gods. Because dead bodies were, def- were a defilement. Why is he doing that? What he's showing is he's proving that he isn't afraid of the false gods. He's proving that they hold no power over him. That he can defile their holiest places. He can destroy their holiest people. He can desecrate their holiest practices. And they are impotent to do a single thing against him. Because they are dead gods carved out of wood in the image of men. And he serves the king of kings and the god of gods. And with him on his side, he says, I will spit in your face and you will do nothing of the kind to me. See, there ought to be some defiance to our repentance. See, this world tells you that you can only be happy if you spend all of your money on yourself. 
And Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so we ought to defy the false god of greed. And we ought to find people who can give us nothing in return and give them large sacrificial amounts of generosity just to bless them in the name of Jesus, in defiance. The world tells us that the best way to be happy is to be as free and without as much responsibility as possible. And we ought to repent and defy that God by taking the responsibility of of children in our church and people who are our neighbors who can't care for themselves, other people. We ought to bring their burdens into our life and pray with them and walk with them through the valley of the shadow of death and restore them as brothers in gentleness and bear their burdens together because Jesus is the one that has bore our burdens and he says that we're going to bear them for a time here and now and then the burdens are all going to be lifted when the day comes of his return. The world tells us that we need to make every second count because this is as much as it as good as it gets. The world tells you that you need to go out and you need to live your best life now and you need to live every day to the in maximum enjoyment of your pleasures and chase after all the frivolities and trinkets of this world that moths and rust will destroy and we ought to defy it. We ought to defy it. We ought to live a life by taking up the cross of Jesus Christ and walking in his way and say, I will sacrifice in the here and now and I will lay down my life for the name of Jesus Christ because I know he has been raised from the dead. And since he has been raised from the dead, I'm going to be raised from the dead and there I will live forevermore. There ought to be, if we get it, if we have a renewed faith, defiance. In our repentance. What's amazing about the story of Josiah is Josiah, remember, he is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He has a small little portion of the land that God had promised his people and that had long been in his people. The rest is under Assyrian control. But during the time of Josiah, Assyria is beginning to relinquish some of its its hold that it's had on the world. So Josiah, Josiah is not content to just stop his repentance and renewal there in the boundaries of Judah over which he is the king. He presses on north. And matter of fact, it says that he goes all the way into the cities of Samaria. He keeps referencing Bethel there in Samaria, that he presses forward into all to bring all of Israel under the covenant of God to enjoy God. So we learn something else about repentance, that it must be expansive. That our repentance must be expansive. We want to repent one area of our life and hold on to all the other areas. We have certain sins we want to give the Lord and others that we deem to be untouchable. But just as Josiah was searching the land and just as Josiah was seeking to spread revival across his land, we ought to seek to spread a renewed faith and a revived faith across the entirety of our person and the entirety of our family and the entirety of our church by seeking out every untouchable sin and saying, God, would you touch it? God, would you touch it? God, would you deliver it? God, would you rid my life of it? God, God, here it is. I want to honor you with everything that I have. And so here, Lord, here are the untouchable sins. Where are your untouchable sins? Where are they? Will you offer them to the Lord? If you will, if you're ready for a defiant repentance that is radical in in nature, that is expansive over the whole of your life, you're ready for the third step along the pathway of a renewed faith. And that is to approach God on his terms. To approach God on his terms. A few years ago, 
I led a team to Swaziland, and we had the opportunity to meet the king there. And it's the first time I've ever met a king. I don't know if you've ever met one. And this is quite an experience, let me just tell you. But I remember our first, they bring us into this room where the king is, okay? And they have him behind, like, this, like, privacy curtain. And he's got a throne that's over there, I'm told. I didn't see it. But he's got a throne that's over there, and he's behind this privacy curtain. And I remember sitting there, you know, as a... As a Western man that was raised as a Western boy in a heart of democracy, I've never seen such like this. There, there are two men in their 50s and their 60s. And they are laid out fully prostrate. And they are crawling on their bellies, dragging themselves together. Now these are two 50s men in their 50s, dignified men. Dragging themselves on their arms up to the feet of the king. And their purpose for dragging themselves up to the feet of the king is that they could grovel at his feet to proclaim his glory and honor. Is there any wonder why we don't fully understand the picture of God as king? You see, what we've been taught is that we can waltz into the presence of God as flippantly as we please. And we can come in and go out. But when you recognize that God is not just some wicked king in Swaziland. He is the king of kings before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. What we recognize is there is no waltzing into his presence. That a king determines how you will approach him. A king determines how you will come to him and how you will appeal to him and how you will speak to him. We were not even allowed to shake the hand of the king because he was not to be touched by us. This gives us something of the understanding of holiness. See, the doctrine of God drives every single thing that we do. And if we have a good doctrine of God, we will approach God rightly. And if we have a bad doctrine of God, then we are setting ourselves up for a judgment that we do not want to face. And so here, in the reforms of Josiah and the repentance of Josiah, he reinstitutes something that had been long forgotten, at least since Hezekiah, the Passover. And he reinstitutes the Passover because the Passover is the way that God had ordained for his people to be reunited with him. And for his people to celebrate him. And for his people to approach him. And it reminds us as we consider approaching God that we must return to him in humility. The Passover was a bloody event. It was a bloody event. It was said that by the time of of uh, Josiah, the way the Passover would have been practiced, there would have been a lamb that would have been slaughtered for every ten people in all of the land. That, we're, we're talking about literally tens of thousands of sacrifices. Blood pouring through the streets, the stench of death everywhere that you go. And it was to bring their minds back to that original Passover all those years ago in which the angel of death was going to sweep across the land of Egypt and only those that had painted the doorposts of their house and the blood of the lamb would be passed over because of the provision of God. And it was a reminder That you don't strut in the presence of a holy God. You approach him by the provision that he has made. And the provision that he has made has been blood. For there is no remission of sins where there is not the shedding of blood. And today for all of us. The invitation is not to go home and to slaughter a, a, a bull or a ram. The invitation for us is to look to the cross. To look to the cross and to look to the cross just like Josiah's uh, 
Josiah's nation all those years ago, seeing the blood that was spilled, we see the costliness of our sin, and it brings us low before the holy and transcendent God on our faces, prostrate, recognizing that we have no right to be in the presence of His holiness, no right to be in the presence of His goodness, no right to be in the presence of His righteousness without Him incinerating us on the presence. But He has made a provision. He has made a provision. And it is by the Lamb who was slain who bore his own name. And if we will approach God, not flippantly, not strutting, not any way that we want to, but through the lens of the cross, through the doorway of the cross, the narrow gate that leads to this narrow path, once we return in humility, we can rest in grace. See, the cross, brothers and sisters, is the gateway to actual renewal. The way that Israel traditionally celebrates, even today, the Passover. is everybody gets on their traveling clothes, right? Because it was the night, you, that's why they eat the unleavened bread. They have to be ready to run at a moment's notice. And so all of them put on their traveling clothes and eat the unleavened bread because they didn't have time to leaven it. And it's a, it's a reminder of all those years ago when they had to leave in the cover of darkness by the hand of God, by the grace of God. But there in their traveling clothes, in the comforter of their living room, it's not lost on them the reality of what's happened. That most of the time, what, the way they'll eat the Passover is they will lay on a couch. And laying on the couch, they eat the unleavened bread. Why? Because they're marking the rest that they have in the sovereign grace of God. That God has provided for them before, and God will provide for them today, and God will provide for them tomorrow. And so in spite of all of the chaos of their lives, in spite of all of the sins that they've stacked up in their account, they can rest in grace because God has made a way. You know, there's probably a lot of reasons why you need a renewed faith. You've sinned. And perhaps this morning, the obstacle between you and a renewed faith is all of those past sins. This morning, I bring you back to the cross. Every sin has been paid for in full. No sin is still counted in your account. You don't have to keep beating up yourself. You don't have to keep trying to pay the price. Christ Jesus has paid the price on your behalf. You can rest in his grace. Maybe you need a renewed faith because you're so consumed and overwhelmed with your life right now. You look at your life and your life is, feels as though it's spinning out of control. You don't know how to manage it. You don't know what to do with it. Can I remind you that the birds have plenty to eat. The grass of the field is clothed in flowers. The Christ Jesus has come as a marker of the provision of Christ. Come to the cross and rest in Christ. Perhaps you're worried about the future. My goodness, turn on the news and tell me who isn't. It's easy to be worried about the future. Until you remember the cross. He has said, I will go and I will prepare a place for you. I will go and I am raised from the dead and I am the first fruits of your own resurrection. The future has been secured. All future sins have been defamed. Death has been defeated. You will be okay. Rest in grace. See, we approach in humility. And as we approach in humility, the grace of Jesus Christ lays us down in our beds and says, little one, you can go to rest because I am the God that never sleeps and never slumbers. And that's why now you can remember what actually matters. 
the narrator, he sums up the reign of Josiah in a way that I think is especially powerful. In verse 25, think about what he says. He says, before him there was no king like him. Who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. According to the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Think about what that says. No king in all of Judah had ever been like him. If I was to ask you before this morning who was the greatest king in all of Judah, who would you have said? You probably would have said David. Certainly when he says this about Josiah, he's not saying that Josiah was the greatest warrior. That would have been David. Saul slayed his thousands. David slayed his tens of thousands. Maybe you would have brought up Solomon. Certainly Josiah is not the greatest builder in the history of Judah. That would have been Solomon. But he doesn't say Solomon. Perhaps you would have thought about his great-granddad, Hezekiah. Certainly Josiah is not the greatest reformer in the history of of Judah. It would have been Hezekiah. But there's something that was different about the life of Josiah that set him apart from David, that set him apart from Solomon, that set him apart from Hezekiah. And it was this, his reign was without scandal, his reign was without deviation, that from the time of his childhood to the time of his death, his eyes were set on the Lord. And so he wasn't the most impressive, and he wasn't the strongest, and he wasn't the brightest, and he wasn't the most gifted, and he wasn't the most brilliant, and he wasn't the most proven. But he was the most faithful. And that was the main thing. You know, what Megan and I ended up doing with the girls is they were going and they they were playing in the ocean and they were drifting down the beach is one day, the final time we bring them back and we say, look, mom and I are sitting right here. All you have to do is look up and find us. And if you look up and find us, you'll know you're in the right place. Brothers and sisters, that's what it means to renew your faith. And that's what it means to walk after the Lord. And that's what Josiah did that none of the other kings had done. It means to look up and to keep your eyes on the Lord. And keeping your eyes on the Lord, all hell may be breaking loose in every other aspect of your life. But you know if you look up and there is the Lord that you are in the right place. So this morning, where are your eyes? Where are your eyes? Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 